Hello and welcome to ClassicalPodcast.com. I'm Lou Smoley, and it's been our great pleasure to offer you our diverse programs of classical music, which include commentary, panel discussions, and interviews, all free of charge for more than five years. We are delighted with the huge response to our programs and are proud of the fact that ClassicalPodcast.com is the most listened to website of its kind in the world. If you've enjoyed our programs and would like to have them continue as a free service, please consider supporting the website by making a contribution. Donations are made through PayPal on our website homepage, classicalpodcasts.com. We encourage you to make a monthly contribution if you can. All revenues from our donations will be used to defray the expenses of the website. ClassicalPodcast.com, Inc. is a nonprofit organization, and all donations are tax-deductible under applicable U.S. tax laws. We thank you for listening to our programs, hope you continue to do so, and for your generous support of ClassicalPodcast.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of What's New in Classical Music. I'm Lou Smoley, and I am delighted to have with me today uh, a celebrated conductor and composer, Jose Cerebrier. Jose, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce you a little more specifically because there may be some people out there, and I hope not, but nevertheless, who aren't familiar with your career, uh, which has been a remarkable one. Uh, you were born in Montevideo, Uruguay, um, and studied music at an early age, in fact, so early uh, that I think it may have been your first conducting activity uh, was at the age of 11 years old um, with the school orchestra that you, uh, in the school you were studying with in Uruguay. Uh, and it was also incredible that that orchestra toured the country, uh, so it enabled you to really sharpen your skills very early on as a conductor of more than a hundred concerts uh, during the four-year period that you were at the school. But at the same time, uh, you began to compose. Uh, and uh, you, in fact, wrote a, a work that's been mentioned at an early age called uh, The Legend of Faust Overture. I don't know if it's been recorded. Uh, pity that it's not. Maybe sometime in if you want your young works <laughs> to be, a, a lot of composers are very concerned about that, but uh, be that as it may, this was not just a work that you wrote, it was a work that was recognized and uh, won a national orchestra composition contest for it. Um, uh, but apparently you couldn't conduct it because you were 15 years old at the time. This is almost Mozartian uh, and uh, nevertheless, it was performed by, I guess, an older conductor. Uh, you then studied at the Curtis Institute in the United States. One of your teachers was Vittorio Giannini, uh, whose music we played in other programs, uh, and then at Tanglewood, uh, where you studied with Aaron Copeland and conducting with Pierre Monteur. These are remarkable figures. Uh, to uh, start your, your career with and study with. Uh, there is a very famous story which 
maybe I'll let you tell a little later uh, about your first symphony that you wrote at 17 uh, and was premiered uh, by uh, none other than Leopold Stokowski, who you became very friendly with uh, and you became his assistant uh, with the American Symphony. Uh, but the interesting thing is that uh, you were going to assist him uh, with another conductor in the premiere of Ives' Fourth Symphony, uh, but the orchestra had some difficulty with it, uh, and that didn't happen when it was initially scheduled. So instead, um, a work by your good self, the First Symphony, was premiered, and that in 1965 at Carnegie Hall. That was, uh, I think, the first time that you had uh, a work of your own performed there. Ever since then, you have accumulated a remarkable record, <laughs> that's an interesting use of the term, as a conductor, uh, recording hundreds of works. The catalog is, 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 is overwhelming. Uh, and now, relatively recently, uh, more of your own music is being recorded. Uh, you have had some positions, Obviously, you were the associate conductor with Stokowski at the American Symphony. You also worked under George Sell in Cleveland. Uh, but apparently, uh, there is, and we'll talk about this, I hope, uh, there is a concern uh, that you may have about accepting offers to be the music director of an orchestra. Uh, and this is something that I think is very interesting to go into, and we'll talk about it. Uh, as to recordings, we shift back and forth because of this dual career that, that, that other composers, of course, engaged in in the past, but usually um, the ones who did well, like yourself, uh, are uh, household words. And, and that may not yet have happened, but if it hasn't, it will. Uh, the uh, Grammy Awards, are, of course, are the highlight of recording uh, awards, and you've won apparently eight uh, of the many that you've been nominated for. That's quite impressive. Uh, in fact, we're going to be listening to some of your recordings, uh, at least of two conduct composers, Dvorak and Glazunov, for both of whom works you've recorded substantially. The entire symphony collection, I think, of both composers, and even more unusually, uh, the complete concertos of Glazunov, which really needed some work. So I could go on, believe me, uh, but I, I wanted us to hear from the maestro, um, and I guess we can start, if there's anything that you'd like to mention about your early years studying at Curtis or at Tanglewood that you think might interest us. Well, what an introduction. Thank you so much. Those were wonderful years at Curtis. Uh, I, I was studying composition at Curtis with Giannini. I was supposed to study with Bohuslav Martinu, who invited me there. It was Bob Martinu. You know, the story of how it happened, I should tell you, it was quite amazing. Um, I was uh, 16 when I heard that uh, Virgil Thompson was coming to South America on a conducting tour. Uh, that's when he, when the Herald Tribune closed, the old newspaper, the Herald Tribune closed, he lost his job as music critic. He was one of the top music critics in America, and a composer, of course. 
So Virgil Thompson got the kind of a um, consolation prize. Um, the State Department from the United States, State Department, gave him a tour of Latin America conducting his music. The only country that didn't invite him to conduct the national orchestra was Mike and Uruguay. I remember the artistic director, a wonderful man called Hugo Balso, a great pianist, showing me Virgil Thompson's scores and saying, look how simple this is. He didn't understand that it was like Satie. Satie is also simple, but is an entity on its own. I, I was very impressed by the music. I was too young at 16 to, to complain. But So instead they let Virgil Thompson, under the influence of the American Embassy, do a lecture. He did a lecture. <laughs> So the lecture was attended by only three people, my parents and myself. Oh and I didn't understand English. So he, he started the lecture in English, and after about three minutes, he, he was furious. He said, how can I give a lecture for three people? You know, we, uh, we didn't understand what he was saying. So he walked off in a half. I was carrying with me my music, my compositions. So I asked the cultural attaché, Mr. Webb, you remember, wonderful man. I said, please, would you give Mr. Thompson my music? He said, well, not now. He's furious. <laughs> but I promise before he leaves tomorrow morning, I will give him or show him your scores. We didn't have a phone. In those days in Montevideo, you had to know someone in the government to have a telephone. You had, amazing. This is talking about 1956. Uh, you had to know a, a politician who will arrange maybe to some conniving to get you a telephone. So, I had a phone call from the pharmacy across the street. They came across and they said, there is a phone call from the airport for young Jose. Um, and I ran over across the street. I almost got run over by a car. And there was Mr. Webb saying, Mr. Thompson um, speaks in Spanish and he would like to speak with you. Virgil said, I saw your music last night in the hotel. I would like to try to get you a scholarship to come to study in America with my friend Aaron Copeland and at Curtis with Boguslav Martineau, or if you prefer, at Eastman School of Music with um, Howard Hanson. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe my luck. <laughs> Two weeks later, I had an, uh, a letter from the uh, same Mr. Webb of the American Embassy, please come and see me as soon as possible. I went with my parents, he said, you have a scholarship to study, you can choose either Curtis or Eastman School of Music, Anna Tanglewood with Aaron Copeland, all arranged by Virgil Thompson, in the only country that didn't pay any attention to him. Mm -hmm. It has been a lesson to me throughout my life. Mm -hmm. You know, Virgil Thompson was a fantastic general. Mm -hmm. And um, and he said, uh, this was, I think, April, he said, you'll be leaving in, uh, in two months, in time to go to Tanglewood. You better have some English classes. <coughs> we will arrange for you to have a month <coughs> of English uh, speeded-up speeded uh, classes in Washington, an American university, and you have a State Department fellowship that will pay you $120 a month in those days was some money, and the trip, of course, and uh, some other expenses. I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there, that's how I came to America. But by the time I arrived at Curtis, <coughs> Virgil Thompson was gone. By the time I arrived at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, uh, I had a letter waiting for me, in fact, two beautiful letters from Bohuslav Martineau, mm -hmm. saying, I'm so sorry, I brought you all the way here, and I have to leave. He went to Switzerland, that's another story where he left, and never came back. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, she got the Guggenheim Fellowship to go to Switzerland and pay for it. That's how I got my, the idea to get myself a Guggenheim Fellowship, which I did yes. the same year as the youngest ever. I didn't think I could, but they gave it to me. And, <clears throat> but my teacher was Vittorio Giannini, and we became very, very dear, very close friends. So that's how I came to America. That answers more or less. And in the summer I studied, it was a great experience with Aaron Copeland. And some of my fellow students, uh, we were f- friends for life. In a Hinaimu Rautabara from Finland, mm-hmm. which was completely unknown then, and for a long, long time, uh, was a, bit, a lifetime friend. And John Duffy, an American composer, mm-hmm. founder of Meet the Composer Organization, and many others. Anyway. But after uh, those years, and when you began to hit your stride, uh, you went to Minneapolis. And I'm fascinated to hear what it was like working with Antal Dora. But this is how it happened. Well, at Curtis, I was studying composition with Giannini. I went to see my violin teacher, uh, Efren Zimbalist, mm-hmm. head of the school. Mm-hmm. Senior. And I, senior, senior, yeah, senior. Yeah. yeah. Um, Whenever his son, the famous actor, came to, to the school, all the girls were, were crazy. <laughs> but it was a father who was head of Curtis, a great violinist. And uh, I asked him, I really want to study conducting. I mean, I love to compose, that's my main love, but conducting is also important. And he said, you can't study conducting, either you are a conductor or you are not. He said, you know the most important conductors today, Fritz Reiner, Leopold Stokowski, Toscanini was before, I never saw him, Fritz Reiner, etc. They never studied conducting, they became conductors. I didn't agree at all. I wrote to the State Department complaining, <laughs> saying, I must study conducting. So they said, okay, we will pay, amazing. They, you know, I handwritten letter, we will pay for um, uh, William uh, Smith, or Bill, Bill Smith, yeah, mm-hmm. assistant to Ormandy. All his life was assistant of the Orchestra mm-hmm. to give me elementary lessons in conducting, although I was already conducting as you say, for four years. Mm-hmm. And that was very helpful. But then I, I asked uh, somebody, what can I do? He said, well, you can, only one person before you graduated in two years, or normally it's four-year course, Leonard Bernstein, he graduated in two years. If you want to, can I graduate in two years? Of course, he said, Mr. Simbolis. If you finish all the prerequisites, you have to write uh, piano sonata, string quartet, and so on. You can graduate anytime you wish. So I did immediately, mm-hmm. and I graduated in two years. Then I, I wrote to the same Hugo Balso. This story has never been told before. How I go to Minneapolis. Hugo Balso, Hugo Balso was the artistic director of the National Orchestra in Uruguay, the man who said that Virgil Thompson was too simple. And I said, I want to study conducting. Do you have any ideas? Sure, he said, let me write to Antal Dorati, and maybe he, you, he'll ask you to audition. So he sent a a uh, telegram in those days <coughs> to Maestro Dorati. And Maestro Dorati replied instantly to me saying, I'm in New York tomorrow. Could you come and meet me at my hotel, the Great Northern Hotel, across from Carnegie Hall, it's still there, mm-hmm. and prepare a symphony, any symphony you wish, and conduct it for me by memory. So I thought of Schubert and finished for this moment. And I, in those days, the train took uh, four and a half hours. I had to get up at three in the morning to arrive because he wanted to see me at 8 a.m. sharp. So I took the first train, I arrived at 7.30, and uh, at 8, I knocked at the hotel room. And there he was, and he's still in his nightgown. He said, oh, great, nice to meet you. Now conduct the Schubert and finish, first moment, and then he left the room. 
I said, well, first of all, which orchestra? I said, there is an orchestra. No, 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 of course there is an orchestra. It's a hotel room. If you can make me hear the music with your gestures, if you can hear it in your mind, I will know immediately if you have what it takes. Mm-hmm. Well, how can you see me? You left. I can see you while I shave from the bathroom mirror. <laughs> it, was a, it, was, it should have been filmed. So then That's I began cool. conducting Schubert and Finnish with interruptions which didn't stop me. He had a beautiful daughter, Tonina, mm-hmm. my age, was 18 by then, mm-hmm. who walked across and distracted me. Then his wife walked across looking surprised. Then his mother-in-law. <laughs> and then finally, and this really should have been filmed, the maid showed up with a breakfast tray for everybody, which she she was startled. I was in the climax in the first moment, <laughs> and she dropped some of it on the floor. So Dorati came at the end uh, laughing and said, you are hired. <laughs> and, and I said, really? She said, yes, if you can keep the tempo going and not be distracted, uh, you have what it takes, you're hired. And after, you know, another story has never been told. I, I love uh, David Zimmerman, he's a good friend. Mm-hmm. He came next, auditioning, and Dorati told him, too late, I yeah. already oh. have somebody. But David went to Minneapolis anyway, mm-hmm. because he had just graduated from Oberlin, and it was too late to make other plans. Mm-hmm. So he spent those two years that I did as well there, just watching. Fine, fine it was a great experience. Every Monday night, I would go to Mr. Dorati's home and have a private lesson on on the music that he would conduct that week. For him, it was great. You know, the best way to learn is to teach. He would go over all the scores and say, never technique, because his technique was very strange, to say the least, like shortlist technique. <clears throat> uh, but he knew the music backwards. He was a great, great musician and had, most of all, tradition from the 19th century, mm-hmm. Godai and Bush and all that. So I learned enormously from him. I was perhaps too young to have learned as much as I could have later on, but we became very good friends with the family. So we had this lesson in his study, and then the whole family and I would have dinner together. It was, it was a marvelous It's a wonderful story. You know, you mentioned something a moment ago that strikes me as very important, and that is the question of conductors and the influence of tradition. I mean, this, of course just by nature, has to change as it is changing. And young people, of course, don't have that availability, uh, and, and, and less and less so. Uh, and I, it, it shows. Uh, we, we can talk about that in more, in more detail later, but I, I wanted to, to ask you the question that I alluded to earlier when I made that, uh, not as long as it could be introduction. <laughs> Uh, and that is, why not a music director? Oh, well, very easily. <clears throat> I did have a music directorship early on. But I, when I finished working with Dorati, I think it was, um, I was at Tanglewood, uh, and my roommate, by the way, was Seiji Ozawa. They put us both in the same little room because neither of us spoke English. Mm-hmm. So they thought <laughs> I'd put them together. And... Uh, uh, at the end of the summer, we had no, no place to go, nothing to do. So I had a car already. Uh, I don't know how I bought a car, but I, I, my parents used to send me $25 a month to, to help with the 120 that the State Department gave me. <laughs> this is 1958, yeah. 1960 by then. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so we drove. Uh, Seiji asked for a ride if he could come with me to New York. 
he had no place to go. And uh, so on my car we drove, but we got lost on the way, and instead of going uh, towards New York, we went in the opposite direction and ended up in Utica. Utica, New York. Yes. And then yes. we, we had breakfast there and picked up a newspaper with a big headline, Tonight, auditions for conductor of the Utica Symphony. So, we, shall we? We looked at the child by then, we spoke a little bit of English, and we called up and asked, because he gave a number of, to attend, not to, and said, look, I'm so-and-so, and this is Japanese conductor, we like to audition. Well, it's, the auditions are closed, but come, if, if there is time, we will let you. We audition. And what impressed, I got the job, by the way. <laughs> my, my bad luck. Anyway, it was because the musicians were impressed that I could solfege. And solfege is something that every Latin American or French or Italian uh, musician learns. Dorenivas so was it. It used to be in New York. It used to be. But they were very impressed that I could sing the opening of Tchaikovsky Fourth Last Moment. My, must be fantastic. And it's the simplest thing in the world. You know? Anyway, I got the job. So for two years, I lived at the YMCA. But what made the salary was $2,000 a year. But it was amplified by a teaching position that came with it for uh, Syracuse University at the Utica campus. Mm-hmm. And that's where I wrote my Fantasia for Strings, by the way, at that time, sitting in the cafeteria of the school. <laughs> um, anyway, so I had this position, and then the board tried to tell me, uh, in fact, they did tell me, uh, that uh, there was a conductor in town, and his wife was uh, in charge. She was the president of the ladies' committee of the orchestra. Every orchestra in America has a ladies' committee. Mm-hmm. His wife was... Uh, insisting that um, he, her husband become the concertmaster. I should fire the concertmaster and let her husband, and I refused. The, the concertmaster we had was loved by everyone, and uh, there was a semi-professional orchestra, you know. They were paid, but very little money. I absolutely refused. So the, 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 the committee of the orchestra board decided either you do that or you have to, you will not renew your contract. You know, they, they had my contract showing it to me. Yes. And I said, well, please don't renew my contract, but I will not uh, work under pressure to let a good man go to get another man, which is perhaps better, but it's not fair. Uh, not on political reasons. So I wrote to Stokowski, I read in the paper that he was organizing a new orchestra. I sent a telegram saying, do you need a help? He said, absolutely, you'll be my associate conductor. So I got out of Utica and became a social conductor in New York with American Symphony. Mm-hmm. But i tell you why else. I decided not to accept any... I've been offered quite a few times. Mm-hmm. I won't say which orchestra, because mm-hmm. that I can mention. Utica is fine because it's a long time ago. But there are uh, three orchestras. One, uh, I went to guest conduct, and the manager offered me the position. And on the way to the airport, he said there was only two conditions, very similar to Utica. You have to fire the concert master. <laughs> It was a lady who was so popular when she came out into the audience, she had practically an ovation. And the, he didn't tell me why. And you have to fire the first trumpet, who happened to be the uh, president of the local union, musicians' union. So I said, I won't fire anybody. You know, I said, but we already have a house for you. You know, really, it was a wonderful situation. I said, I'm sorry, it's, it's not, if the opportunity arises when I have to have a musician leave for artistic reasons, 
or in these many regions has to be a very good process. I'm not going to do this. So they hired a young conductor just out of Juilliard, and sure enough, the orchestra went on strike, and it disappeared for two years. I did the right thing. Another orchestra, a very more important one, almost a major orchestra, many years ago, invited me to be the conductor. They really, they, they took me out to dinner, and they said, everybody likes you, and you should be the conductor, with several conditions. Mm-hmm. Condition number one, you should stop desk conducting around the world. And I said, why? <laughs> because, this was in the South, someplace. Because if I buy a painting, this is the president of the orchestra lady, if I buy a new painting, I want it hanging in my house. I don't want to lend it to every museum around the world. I said, <laughs> what is second condition? Second condition is your wife, who's having a fantastic career, singing at the Met at the time, in the Paris Opera and all that. She stopped singing abroad because we need her here. She will be our number one bullet uh, to, to, for fundraising. You know, conductors' wives in those orchestras are crucial to help fundraising. And I said, well, I can't accept either of those conditions, so thank you, goodbye. I can tell you about three or four more anecdotes like that. It doesn't mean that every orchestra has those prerequisites, but... Uh, it's, it's a matter of scale. It's a matter of scale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes they are that severe, sometimes they're more subtle, uh, but by and large, the conductor has to be very strong, and today, if, you, if I may say, he has to put it right at, at the beginning. This is this is what I do. Yes. These are my responsibilities, my decisions, and you can ask. I know. There are other offices. For example, Australia, before I went for the first time, even before I conducted, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC, asked me if I would be music director, they call it their principal conductor, they are not music director, of the Adelaide, Adelaide, which is a very fine orchestra. Yeah, still, uh, still is. So I said, no, I don't accept <laughs> already, but they have no, no, no board directors, but they have other problems. I said, I will accept instead principal guest conductor, which I accepted. They thought it was, they thought that the board was an eccentricity on my part, but because they treated me as, as chief conductor anyway, which I was, but I wanted principal guest, so I had some some leeway. And the Sydney, the same thing, they offered me, and I said no. And um, in Europe, it's a different situation. There are no boards like in American orchestras. You have a different, it's a political uh, appointment, you know. It's done through, through uh, the mayor of the city or the council and so on. So I prefer to, to have orchestras where I guest conduct regularly every year. In London, practically all the orchestras, but especially the Royal Philharmonic these days and the Philharmonia, uh, Bournemouth Symphony and Royal Scottish National, and uh, also now the English Chamber Orchestra, the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, and so on. And uh, there are several orchestras in other parts of Europe where I guest conduct on a regular basis. I imagine you are familiar with, with another of your predecessors who uh, I think now that we have so much information about this career in New York uh, over a hundred years ago, we know that the great Gustav Mahler suffered from very similar circumstances, uh, and, and that, that, that in, a, in a sense, could raise a smile. Yes. <laughs> having, having, uh, you you know, even uh, one of my mentors, Stokowski, he, he, he lost his job in Philadelphia, he was fired, mm-hmm. because he played an old Varese concert, mm-hmm. and the uh, before that, he did premieres of Wozzeck, uh, Alain Berg, he did uh, 
many contemporary, which now are standards, but they were contemporary in those days, uh, hundreds of works. So the board decided this is, this is absurd, and they told him. So for years and years, he wouldn't, whenever he went by train by Philadelphia, he would close the shades on the train. <laughs> he was very upset. But then they friended again. Uh, These are the so, ways that, that uh, boards or, or administrators of orchestras can make things much worse yes. for themselves. Your wife, uh, it's so ironic. I would have thought that uh, her touring Europe and your touring Europe was a, a tremendous uh, benefit, of course, to, uh, a sales pitch, forgive me, uh, for uh, the international fame of, of musicians coming to this place to, to, to be the prime focus of their well, but people don't always think that way, and, and Mahler himself, as I mentioned, uh, was uh, castigated in Vienna because he went on tour. Yeah. I didn't like it. Um, but it so, instead, in, uh, so instead, um, I, I was in charge of festivals. I, I, I helped uh, this uh, Worcester International Festival, mm-hmm. the oldest music festival in America. Mm-hmm. I helped them. I was artistic director of music for several years. And then I organized my own festival, Festival Miami. Mm-hmm. Florida, which still exists, now it's in the 32nd year, and it's very successful. And I did amazing things there. I brought the Pittsburgh Symphony, the American Symphony, we did Ives Fourth Symphony with the American Symphony. I brought uh, a op- London Opera Group, we did the American premiere of Liszt's only opera. Very few people know that Liszt wrote an opera when he was a young boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did the pre- American premiere of Wagner, early Wagner Overture. Uh, we commissioned Elliot Carter to write his fourth string quartet for the festival, and uh, we also brought uh, the orchestra from uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and, and the uh, Latin American string quartet, and, and many jazz musicians. And I'm so proud of the festival. I was music direct, artistic director for four years, but I had to do everything—not just prepare the programs, but you know wash the windows, and uh, just about everything else. So I couldn't continue as my career became busier and busier. I couldn't continue anyway. And speaking of that career, um, there have been many composers whose music you recorded and performed. And I wouldn't even begin to go through a small list. Uh, but recently, uh, some particular uh, composers seem to be relative focus. Uh, and very successfully, I mentioned one that I'm not going to play excerpts from, um, and that's the Shostakovich recordings of film music. Uh, now, we, we do know, unfortunately, that film music over the many decades has not been given uh, the best of, 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 of representation. Um, critics are strange. Maybe it's because uh, the field of film music uh, is not always, uh, 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 how should we put it, not always uh, based upon classical composers writing music. Uh, but there are many, many, many uh, composers like Shostakovich who wrote fine film music. And I, for those of you who don't know the film music of Shostakovich but like his music, um, frankly, even if you are not familiar with his music, I really suggest that uh, you hunt out and, and acquire both the film music set and the Golden Age ballet, uh, 
which I would go with both. Yes, exactly, uh, because uh, these are well done recordings. And I haven't said a word about about my my particular um, person, if I may, orientation to your conducting. But I'm gonna I'm gonna do that now because we're about to listen to some other works. Uh, we're gonna concentrate on uh, recordings that. The Maestro is made of Dvorak's works and Glazen. Uh, but I have to make one comment. As, as, as many of you know, I, I also review concerts and, and recordings and have for most of my, my adult life. Uh, and uh, what happens when you do that is you get a sense of how things change over time when younger generations take the mantle. Uh, and a, a lot of this has to do some, with something we mentioned before about the, the, the diminishing of the, of the European tradition uh, in, t in terms of, of education. Uh, and, uh, but it also has to do with a different orientation. Maybe it's, it's our, our world. I don't want to get into philosophical issues, but one could easily. Uh, but the difference is treating the music naturally uh, with a sense of style that fits the music without resorting to extremes in order to be popular, to make a, a, a splashing success. Audiences generally react to two things, energy and high dynamic level. And even if the music is beautiful, uh, what urges them on, especially if the work ends with a fast passage, uh, is, is that excitement. Uh, and if it ends on a high level fortissimo with great chords and power, um, the, the more hype, the better. Now, I'm happy to say that this gentleman who is sitting with me today, uh, at least now, we've never spoken about this, but it is clear from all of these recordings, and I think I know many of them, that this is a, a professional conductor who sees the score and the music as what he wants to reveal in his performances. Now I'm going to stop talking and, and ask for your reaction. Oh, you have it. You, you, I couldn't say it better than you did, so I leave it at that. It's exactly the way I feel about music making. It's a very difficult problem because uh, it, performance is something like uh, a, 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 uh, a, a presentation, as if one were to be hired for a job every time one goes before an orchestra, whether it's as an instrumentalist, as a member, or as a conductor. Uh, and what that does to music if it's not under the guidance of the music itself, but something extraneous, attractions that are beyond the scope uh, of the music, uh, can be very damaging, I think, to the music. Because the public only knows what it hears. It's not, uh, it has become, in America at least, a more and more, uh, how should I say, uneducated audience with the most famous expression being, I know what I like. Uh, 
and that's fine, but popularity is not really the issue, it's the substance, the art. And I think your recordings, and we're going to listen to some samplings, and I'm, I'd be delighted if any of, of you listening to us uh, are interested enough to contact us and, and, and give us your thoughts. My thoughts are that what you're going to hear is the antithesis of this problem. This is naturally raw music in a manner that it be fitting to the composer's style, to the, the what's on the printed page, but never only that. The way phrases are shaped, the way paragraphs are raw, is, is a, a, very, a very wondrous thing. And, and when I listen to other versions of the same work, the distinction becomes manifest. And so I'm, I'm delighted that, that you keep that tradition alive, which was the tradition inherited from Europe, um, and uh, it, it seems to be weakened. Well, <clears throat> I was so lucky to arrive in America at the time when I never saw Toscanini, except for films, or Fritz Reiner, except for films, but it was still a time when the tradition was alive. And uh, most young conductors, especially, but even conductors from, from the 80s, 90s on, didn't have that benefit. You know, tradition is lost. And uh, so, what's replacing it is is uh, hyperbole. Uh, and and uh, but nevertheless, uh, I'd like to to, to play now. Uh, some of the Dvorak music that you've recorded. There is a set of the complete symphonies that includes several Slavonic dances, the Czech suite, legends, uh, and and uh, and some other works that that uh, Scherzo, Picciosa, and uh, uh, But uh, we're going to hear first two Slavonic dances from the Opus 72 set. They're numbers eight, number two and eight in that sequence. I'm not going to interrupt them, uh, and we will uh, we'll come back after you've heard them. And I think you'll you'll hear, listen carefully, what we're talking about.
So that should give you some idea uh, about the art of Maestro Cerebria, uh, which is, is a remarkable art because it is, well, I don't want to say a last vestige. That would be an awful thing to do. But I'm not quite convinced that it, it may not become that. Uh, but it is at least now and here. You can really hear what these works, if I may say, should sound like. Uh, now, uh, that brings me, in a sense, uh, to a, a, a kind of profession question, and that is about conducting itself. Um, it's, it, it obviously um, is... Uh, well, here's the question, essentially. Things have changed in the way that uh, uh, musicians, young musicians, want to be conductors. It, uh, I, I, it is remarkable to me how many young people who are studying music want to be, be conductors. Maybe that's not a shock, because it, after all, is a, a very high-profile profession. But if there's any insights that you'd like to leave those of our listeners who are in that position, I'd really appreciate hearing. Well, uh, there is a tendency today all over the world, first it started in America, um, to, for orchestras to hire younger and younger and younger conductors. And uh, it makes sense in other professions, like in sports, where someone about 30 or 35 is considered already an old person, or in ballet, where it's a very short career, uh, uh, even in actors, you know, actors, I have actors and actresses' friends past the age of 50, they, they have a hard time finding roles. There is a, a, we are in a youth-oriented uh, 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 civilization at the moment, which is wonderful, it's great. But conducting, the trick of conducting, if I can use such a word, is one word, experience. There is no substitute for con experience in conducting. And you cannot graduate from a school learning uh, the element, how to beat time, and how to read a score, and then begin to conduct. It just doesn't work that way. And the experience is obtained in front of an orchestra. And before that, watching really great conductors, of which there are very few left, watching them for years, and learning rehearsal techniques. So, experience, rehearsal technique, and then tradition. That neither of those can be invented or learned in, in a music school. Now, some schools have such demanding entrance examination requirements that many very fine conductors cannot even get into the school. Uh, and some are very good requirements, like uh, writing down the notes that you hear a pianist play, multiple notes, you have to show that you have perfect pitch. Very important. Reading a new score at the piano, very important. But none of those things, which are crucial, are substitutes for experience in front of an orchestra, for making music. It's a very strange art conducting, because you, the conductor, once Dorati told me this, Maestro Dorati said, you know, the, the best example for humility is to stop conducting in a rehearsal, not in performance, and notice that the orchestra continues to play <laughs> for a while, anyway. Yes. Uh, but the conductor 
it has to be slightly ahead of the orchestra. It cannot be at the same time, but so slightly ahead that it's not perceived by anybody except the musicians. Slightly ahead so they know what he wants. And the gestures have to show the character of the music. So the conductor has to see the whole picture of the movement, not just bar to bar, so he knows where it's going. He's like a performer. He's a great violinist or pianist or singer. Cannot just think of the particular bar, but has to think of the whole work and then proceed accordingly. Uh, so I, recently my manager in Spain said, you know, we have a big problem in Spain. The craziness about young conductors have now arrived finally in Spain as well. Inevitable. And, <laughs> inevitable. And it's just misled. Uh, the people who hire the artists do not realize you can have you cannot have a very young conductor. I mean, there are exceptions, of course. Uh, Luda Mel is an exception. But there is a reason for that. I know him since he was 17. And when he was 15 already, he had this orchestra of young players at his mercy, is not the right word. But he was working with them six hours a day. Mm-hmm. for 10 years mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, by the end of that he could conduct a huge amount of repertoire for memory and control it and, and make music and then the government uh, uh, one of the few things that Chavez did in, in Venezuela he hired or they hired ad- somebody advising Dr. Abreu advising to hire Abado for a huge amount of money because he wouldn't have come to come on a private presidential plane to to um, Caracas mm-hmm. to sit with Gustavo Dudamel mm-hmm. and, and teach him the art of conducting. So, I mean, then it's okay because uh, Abado uh, learned from Bernstein and from other people and to t- teach him a lot, especially, especially he taught him gestures and how to memorize. Abado could conduct everything from memory. It was amazing. But he didn't. He didn't. That's the wonderful thing. He didn't. He didn't conduct everything from memory. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and there, I remember, I never met him, but I've heard that that subject came up, and, and he said, you have a number, I need a score here. Really? Not because I, I might be at risk if I don't have it, uh, but there's always something that I might need to put my eye on. And that was interesting. So it isn't always... But you know, he studied to memorize. He studied with Hans Swarovski, was not a very good conductor, but a great teacher in Vienna. Zubin Meta studied with him as well, and all his students learned to memorize. Swarovski method was called, was yes. how to memorize music, and uh, Anabado transmitted that method to uh, to young uh, Gustavo Dudamel. But he's an exception, Dudamel. Most other young conductors don't have the opportunity to have an orchestra at their mercy for ten years, six hours a day, you know. And they, and they start conducting. Uh, it's a very, it's a pity, really, because it means that the performances. I'll give you one more example. I was recording Mendelssohn Symphony Number no. Three and Four for a label that no longer exists. Uh, uh, it's right there is ASV, yes. ASV from England. It was a very important label in, in its mm-hmm. time. He was purchased uh, by Universal. Um, anyway, they asked me to, come to record Mendelssohn's Symphony Number no. 3 and 4 with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, part of the four CDs I did for them. And all Vorjak, all Tchaikovsky, 
Bill Mendelssohn and all Prokofiev. Anyway, for the Dvorak, I asked a friend of mine, a music critic, uh, all-around musician, Robert Matthew Walker, to send me some recordings, because I have not yet conducted the Mendelssohn Symphonies, three and four, clearly, it's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. He sent me 50 recordings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I learned, I listened first to the ones from the 1912, 1914, 19, they were all interesting and totally different from each other. And then I skipped because I didn't have time. I listened to the others recorded from the 1970s onwards, and they all sounded the same. You could take one movement from one and another from another recording, and you wouldn't have known the difference. You went back years to the 30s, 40s, even 50s, and they were all different. The last one to be different in the best sense was incredibly Bernstein. You don't identify Bernstein with that repertoire. But Leonard Bernstein conducted the Israel Philharmonic in uh, uh, Mendelssohn Symphony Number no. 3 has a personality. And then after that, they were, uh, the phrasing was beautiful. But after that, there was no phrasing, just notes. I mean, some faster, some slower, but all the same. I once was asked to be in the jury of a piano competition. I've been in several. The Van Travel competition, I was in the jury. But this one was called the Xerox piano competition, sponsored by, Z- <laughs> by the Xerox Corporation. And I, I, I feel sorry for whoever won it, <laughs> but that's typical. And the same thing is you know, with pianists, uh, and if in a competition, if some pianist sounds slightly different from the norm, as did Pogorelic, he lost immediately, and Marta Argerich resigned, because she thought he was the most original. And he became the most famous, no one remembers who won that that Chopin competition. Poverilich became famous because uh, he lost. (laughs) That's another irony uh, in that at one time you had to be different uh, as a musician because the competition was such that you had to distinguish yourself. Uh, And that's not really changed. It's just the dimensions have changed. The difference had more to do in the old days with style. Today it has more to do with, as I said before, the adjuncts. Um, the, 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 I'd like to call them the tools, the tempo. Uh, I, I once I spoke recently with a, a pianist uh, suggesting a piece to her, and she said, no, that's too simple. Uh, I couldn't play that you know, very fast and, and make a, you know, make a, uh, a splash, I forgot the word she used, make a splash, uh, you know, make it, make it exciting enough that people will remember me. Um, and, and the other side of the coin with orchestras more is the dynamic level. Uh, uh, I recently uh, went to a concert of Mahler's Eighth Symphony. I mean, you can't, you can't imagine bigger work. I mean, there are bigger ones. But nevertheless, uh, and while the conductor basically beat time throughout the entire, can you imagine this? Throughout the entire work, uh, there's almost no inflection at all. Uh, And then at the end, of course, the overpowering music was deafening. Intermediary, the rest of the work, was treated rather insignificantly as something to be gotten over with so that we could get to the big moment. Um, 
And I'm not talking about, about performers or conductors that are unknown. So it, it, it's a problem. But uh, the antidote of which is coming up now, because we're going to hear some more uh, of Dvorak. Uh, and this time, we're going to listen to the, from the Czech suite, uh, the uh, number five. And that'll be followed by the third movement of Dvorak's sixth symphony.
going to talk about the future, uh, immediate future, I think, uh, in terms of recordings. Uh, and I ask you, Maestro, uh, what do you have ready to go in the way of recordings? And what are you planning on recording? Very good. So this, uh, in April, I have two new releases. One is uh, music by American, German-born American composer Samuel Adler. Adler is best known around the world because he wrote this uh, iconic orchestration book, huge book, the size of a telephone book, translated into, I think, at least 30 languages, including Chinese and some unusual languages. So uh, his, his teachers is a historic figure. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a record of world premieres, Sixth Symphony, mm-hmm. uh, number six, a cello concerto, which was premiered by the Cleveland Orchestra uh, two years ago or three years ago, and with a fabulous cellist, uh, Maximilian Hornman. He will become very famous, I'm sure, because he's fantastic. And another orchestral piece. And these are all world premiere recordings with a great orchestra, the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, with which I've made over 40 recordings. This will be in a label I haven't recorded for previously, but it's becoming fast one of the top levels is called Lean, L-I-N-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are well known because they make uh, uh, recording equipment and listening equipment. Mm-hmm. And um, they live right there in Glasgow, so it was a perfect match. So this is coming out uh, in April. Also in April, Naxos, a record for which I've done lots of work, is bringing out a compilation and including some new releases of, my, of the Stokowski transcriptions mm-hmm. of Bach, 
Um, this is like a, a hit a record of hits, a Bach Toccata and Fugue in the minor. Um, I don't know what the Tchaikovsky, something by Mussorgsky, pictures of an exhibition, a very unusual Stokowski orchestration, totally different from Ravel's. Wagner, some of the Wagner transcriptions. He didn't transcribe, he put together orchestral segments. He didn't retouch the orchestration. And the other things I can remember. That's coming out also in April. So I have two CDs in April. Excellent. Then in May, BIS, another label for which I do many recordings, is a Swedish, wonderful Swedish label, specialist in high-quality sound. I love them. I've done many successful records for them. Uh, they have a record of uh, CD of music by Chinese, China's number one living composer, Xiogang Ye, spelled Y-E. Uh, the Detroit Symphony did an entire concert of his music at Lincoln Center two years ago. He uh, came to New York especially to do an entire concert of his music. He's a very important composer. He's head of the National Conservatoire in Beijing. And I just did a concert of his music, and again, an entire concert in Beijing just a few weeks ago. So this is a recording I made uh, of his music with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in London. Symphony Number no. 3, which is a very unusual work, and a violin concerto called The Last Paradise. Beautiful music. Mm-hmm. And this is coming out in May on Peace. Then I have many other records coming up. Oh, in June. It's a Gershwin record. I'll talk about <laughs> Gershwin record uh, on uh, Universal. I don't know if they're bringing it out on Deutsche Gramophone or Decca. It's one of their labels. Mm-hmm. And this with a great uh, Miami-based pianist, Shelley Baird, who is also dean of the School of Music University of Miami, and is, I think, the best jazz pianist today because he's totally classically trained and yet totally free. He can improvise for hours. Mm-hmm. And so he recorded Rhapsody in Blue and the I Got Rhythm Variations for Piano and Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And to go with that, I did, with, this is with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra of London. Mm-hmm. I did also An American in Paris, my second recording of it. And the three piano preludes which I orchestrated and, and the lullaby, an early Gershwin work, which I also orchestrated. And the reason I orchestrated these pieces is another story, if you can take one more minute, is really? a marvelous anecdote. One day, sitting in my apartment, this apartment, the phone rang, and this very crackling old voice said, Maestro, I am Gershwin's sister. And I didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a crank call, and I was ready to hang up. She said, you don't believe me, let me put my son on. And he came on the line, and he said, um, it's true, she's my mother, she's Gershwin's sister. And who are you? I said, well, I am Leopold Godowski III. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed, just like you're doing. Indeed, Leopold Godowski III, who lived in America for a long time, in New York, in fact. Uh, and, uh, his, he, and this lady who spoke to me was Gershwin's sister. She survived Gershwin by 60 years. Uh, this is 12 years ago, she was 96. Mm. And she said, I want to commission you to orchestrate the three piano preludes and the lullaby and to make the official Gershwin 100th anniversary recording, of course, which I did, with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Uh, and uh, that's why I orchestrated the pieces, which the Gershwin's publishers published. And, uh, and the recording was released by a label in Switzerland called 
dynamite. And, and her son, uh, Leopold Godowski III, recorded the piano concerto. That's a complete record. The piano concerto uh, I made in Paris, the three preludes which I orchestrated, and the, the lullaby which I also orchestrated. That so, and that's forward. coming out in June. No, no, the one coming out in June is a new record ah. uh, with Shelley Berg, which includes also American Paris, and same repertoire, but it's nothing to do with the Dialogue family. It's a new record. That's on Universal. Uh, then something else is coming out in August, I can remember. Oh, yes, I remember that. <laughs> it's also on Lynn Records, uh, music by American composer Robert Bissell. B-E-A-S-E-R. He's the head of Juilliard Composition Department. Uh And this includes the also world premiere recordings of his guitar concerto Mm -hmm. with Elliot Fisk. He wrote the process. And uh, I don't think anybody else can play it. It's fiendishly difficult (laughs) for the soloist, for the orchestra. It's a real fiendishly difficult masterpiece. And I'm so glad he's been asking me for years and I recorded it. Finally, we did it. And this is with Royal Scottish? Uh, Royal Scottish Royal Scottish. Also, and on a lean label. That's coming out in August. <coughs> Very important release. It includes uh, other works by Bissell, but this is the most important one. Half hour long guitar concert. <laughs> and uh, it's been played around, always by Elliot Fisk. I had made a recording of Elliot Fisk ten years ago for Naxos. Mm-hmm. with the Barcelona Symphony Orchestra, concerto by Leonardo Balada, Spanish-American yes. composer. But this is the first time. And what he does is close to a miracle. I mean, you, the fingers move so fast, you don't even see them. Okay. Uh, and I, I, the orchestra was also fantastic. So it's a great recording. I'm looking forward to that. Just like the Samuel Adler recording, also very important. Then every month I have releases. I can't remember them. It goes on and on. I won't bore you. No, it's not boring at all. And I, I, I myself look forward to, to seeing, to getting copies of all of them. Um, but I want to play some more of the, the works I promised you all, uh, and that is uh, some of the Glazunov set uh, uh, that includes the complete symphonies. It's actually, I don't think yet, uh, boxed as a complete set. I think they It's a box. Have they, have, oh, yes. have they done that? Um, but uh, I want you all to hear uh, from the seasons, which many of you may not know, but for the famous last part, autumn, we're not going to play that, but we are going to play winter, uh, which is a fairly substantial uh, orchestral work, about 10 minutes long. It's quite quite fascinating. Uh, and we'll follow that uh, with the scherzo from the Fifth Symphony, because that recording of the Fifth Symphony, I think that went up for a, for a nomination for a Grammy. Uh, it's a spectacular performance. Uh, and But I, I didn't want to end with that because I was so impressed with the Sixth Symphony performance that I wanted you all to hear the first movement at least. So we're going to hear those three, the winter, the scherzo from the Fifth, and the first movement of the Sixth Symphony in sequence.
so we've heard music by Glazunov. Uh, Maestro, you wanted to say something about that? Well, just that Warner uh, released it as a box, which includes not only the complete symphonies uh, performed by the wonderful Royal Scottish National Orchestra, but it also includes the complete concertos uh, with the Russian National Orchestra. I also think, although I mean, it may not be in the box, because I don't have the box, I have the individual recording, but you recorded a piece I was not familiar with, La Mer by Glazunov. Indeed. And it's <clears throat> Salome by Glazunov and La Mer by Glazunov. I thought it would be cute. <laughs> well, but the Salome by La Mer is a quite an impressive piece. Yes. Uh, and I, I'm delighted that you, that you did that. I, who am always looking for, for a new repertory uh, and uh, to possibly play it. So we may save that for another uh, event uh, sometime in the future, uh, because it's a wonderful piece. Uh, now I want to talk about your music, finally, because that, that uh, while we're leaving it for the last, is by far not the least. Uh, you've had several recordings now of your works, uh, and we're going to hear two of them complete. First is, I think, a fairly early work, the Fantasia, uh, and uh, this is one of the most popular, I think, of your compositions. And then uh, we'll hear one of the symphonies. But uh, are there any things you'd like to tell us about the Fantasia? Well, I was saying before that I wrote it while I, while I was uh, working in, in Utica, New York. And I was teaching at uh, Syracuse University, the, the new Utica campus, which was really in a cafeteria. And I wrote it in, in that cafeteria, and I, uh, I wrote it uh, in a very short span of time, and it's turned out to be, as you said, one of my most uh, so-called popular works. It's played all over the world, and uh, I still I love it. It's a very, very good work. Um, and it's... Uh, it's something to do with uh, Disney? Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, <coughs> I wanted Stogowski to play it. He never did. He played my Elegy for Strange. So I called it Fantasia, <laughs> thinking he might be <laughs> interested in playing it. <laughs> but in a way, the, the title fits because it doesn't have a form. It's not sonata form. It's not. It's really a fantasy, uh, free free flow. So the, the title fit, fits the work very well. And it has a lot of moods, very different. Indeed. In a way, you'll be very surprised when you hear it. I think by the opening. You know, originally I wrote it, yes, for string quartet. In fact, it was a commission, I remember now, from the Harvard Musical Association from Boston. And they premiered it. Then I orchestrated it for string orchestra, which is a better version, I think, the original. But the string quartet version was premiered in Washington. There used to be a festival in Washington. And I never forgot, I was very flattered, the critic of the Washington Post at the time wrote that this is the 1812 of string quartets <laughs> because of the ending. I yes. wasn't there. I didn't hear it. But it must have been quite something. Uh, it, it's quite a, a wonderful performance, uh, in fact. And it's performed now by the National Chamber Orchestra of Toulouse with José Cerebrier conducting.
Now that we've heard that, uh, which is you know, an early work and a single work, I want to play for you what I think is a, one of the great masterpieces of the 20th century. I really do. I think that I, I really enjoyed the first two symphonies very much. Uh, They're very impressive. I could see why Stokowski uh, was willing to, to, to premiere it in place of the Ives' fourth symphony, I think. Uh, many, many, many years ago. Uh, and then there's the second symphony, which is a, equally fascinating for very different reasons. Uh, but the third, which is called the Mystique, uh, is, is, is quite that. In fact, it has a, one very special aspect to it, uh, the use of the human voice, which appears in the last movement. Uh, it's vocalese, uh, no text, uh, but it adds an otherworldly dimension uh, to the music which does capture that dimension in a very special way. The mystic aspect uh, that I think uh, Jose were looking for. And so let's listen to then the, the third symphony complete. Uh, it's in four movements uh, and it's performed uh, again by the uh, uh, orchestra, the chamber orchestra of, of Toulouse conducted by Maestro Cerebriere.
Maestro, there's a couple of other things I'd like to talk about briefly. Uh, one, I don't know whether it is true or not, but is are there any works that you've written that include some aspect of your native land's folk music? Sure. When I was a student at Curtis, I had to write this piano sonata in order to graduate, and uh, it has uh, Latin American rhythms, not necessarily Uruguay, but could be combination of Brazil and Argentina or something, but definitely identifiable. And my second symphony, which you, you mentioned a while back, uh, has Latin rhythms in it. That's uh, true. You can hear that somewhere in the first movement and in the later on at the end. It's like a, a samba or something like that. Uh, but they are written into the music. But otherwise, my music has a Slavic tendency, which mm -hmm. I cannot help. That comes naturally. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, then there's another question that occurred to me, which is uh, whether opera is in your mind as a conductor and as a composer. Well, as a conductor, I did in New York, for example, the, the, uh, I did Manon, Massenet, the New York City Opera. When New York City was, I had uh, Beverly Seals ask me to do it, and she got for me a fantastic cast of graduates. Or some great singers had become very famous since living in New York City Opera. And we did about 16 performances, Manon. So suddenly, and I never forgot, I never read reviews, but sometimes one can learn from criticism, so I, I read it. But this particular New York Times review started very unusually with my name. Usually in an opera, the conductor is all not mentioned, or at the end it says, and it was conducted by. <laughs> yes. But whoever wrote it um, said, last night was this really conducted Manon. I couldn't believe it. So I must have put a stamp into it. Suddenly I was considered a Massenet specialist. <laughs> so when Gideon Waldrop, who was the dean of the Julian School of Music, mm -hmm. left to become president of the Manhattan School of Music, First thing he did was to invite me to conduct the American premiere of Massenet's Cherubin, mm. which was Massenet's last opera, mm. and it hadn't been performed in a hundred years, of course, never in America. So I agreed, I did it, and uh, I had to audition mezzos to do the principal role, and the faculty wanted a particular mezzo, I wanted a particular one, and I won the, the nah. fight. It turned out to be Susan Graham. It was her first first break. And then when she made her Covent Garden debut, they, they asked her, what would you like to sing? She said, that opera, Massenet, the first time in England. It hadn't been done uh, ever. So, and then what I did in Australia, I did uh, with a wonderful Australian opera, that beautiful house there, I did uh, the original version of Boris, Godunov and Musowski, the five-hour version, yes. six-act with a Polish act. There are several versions of it, you know, the, the, the original, mm -hmm. which only recently be, be, became known. Uh, the, the uh, of course, uh, the version, a two-hour version that uh, Rizzi Korsakov did. And then Shostakovich did another orchestration, which is, is better, of course. And then it's the original, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I did that. And I was asked to do Salome, and I was going to do it, but I resigned from it because many of the performances were to be on the same day afternoon uh, performance of the five-hour uh, Boris, and evening the hour and a half Salome and other stuff. So some conductors can do it, but I put so much of myself in a performance, I can only do one opera per night. 
but I've done many things. Mozart, Don Giovanni, I've done uh, in France, in Paris, and other parts. Uh, in Pittsburgh Opera, I've done uh, La Bohème. I did my debut conducting opera overnight. One day when I was managed by the Europe management, Polish of Europe, <coughs> he called at five in the morning, first time, and all the time, he, he used to be my wife's, Carol Farley's manager. I arrived at the, at the roster much, much later. I couldn't believe it, five in the morning, this is Saul calling. <laughs> Saul, <laughs> he said, the conductor in Mexico doing the poem was, was fired, and they need someone now. Mm. Do you know La Boheme? I said, I hope so. I have never conducted opera. Mm. So he said, okay, Edgar Midler, one of my people, will go to the pick you up and take you to the airport. There will be a ticket waiting for you. When is the performance? Tonight. <laughs> so it was my baptism by, by fire, yes, literally. So Edgar Midler wanted to talk to me during the flight. I said, it's just me. I have to look at the score. And uh, it was great. I went to Mexico, became one of my regular stops for years and years. I was there all the time. It was a big success. And the next thing I did, by the way, the next year they told me to choose, was since you spoke about Shostakovich's film music, I did one of the greatest film scores ever written. Um, you know, I did uh, uh, Alexander Nevsky. Prokofiev. Prokofiev, sorry, Prokofiev. Uh, I meant to see Prokofiev. Right. And Shostakovich, I did on the same program, The Godfly. Mm. which is a film score, a wonderful film score. So it was two Russian composers' film scores, Prokofiev's Alexander Nevsky, it's a cantata written on the film score, and, and uh, Shostakovich, The Godfly. And so that was my, my debut in opera. Then I did Bohème all over, all over the place. But I do very few operas. Uh, they take a lot of, lots of time, you know. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> but I did some, some unusual operas. For example, I did a modern premiere of Bloch's Macbeth. Wonderful. I did it in, in London with the Philharmonia Orchestra, which I just conducted the Philharmonia on a regular concert, but they had a series of operas in concert form, and I did Macbeth by, by Bloch. And uh, I remember Dorati was my, had been my teacher, came to the performance, and I still remember to this day his comment afterwards. Uh, he was very impressed by the performance. I've done other unusual operas like that, I did the American premiere with my wife of Tchaikovsky's last opera, Yolanta, which suddenly has become popular, mm. but forever it was ignored. You know, when Yolanta was premiered, it was a companion piece of Nutcracker Ballet. Huh. And uh, Nutcracker was considered secondary. Yolanta was the one that made the news. And then it became forgotten because of the duration. Now it's popular again, it's been done all over, I've recorded several times. But I did the American premiere. It was sponsored at the time by the, by the Met, Metropolitan mm-hmm. Opera, mm-hmm. and uh, at Carnegie Hall, a concert performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done many, many things like that. Uh, but about writing an opera, of course, it's in the back of my mind. And in fact, uh, there is an association based in Buenos Aires that is international that wants me to write an opera. Uh, and they announced it already, and uh, it's incredible because we have not uh, made an agreement for it, mm. but um, uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, it's a special association. Um, anyway, uh, it's in the back of my mind. We, we would look forward, certainly, to that. Um, well, I, I really do appreciate uh, your coming and, and, and uh, 
letting us have the insights as well as the fascinating stories that you tell about yourself and your career. Uh, I look forward, myself, and I'm sure all of you do, to more recordings, uh, particularly of your own music. Uh, and so, uh, I, again, I thank you, Maestro Jose Cerebriere, for being with us on What's New in Classical Music. Uh, this has been Lou Smoley. And please don't forget to make a contribution to the website to keep it a free service. Just go to our homepage at classicalpodcasts.com where you can donate any amount through PayPal.